But <clears throat> Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, uh, well, he's one of the many pieces of news this past week that, that I saw that kind of blew my mind. Um, you know, news has been intense for a couple of years now, but this week, lots of stuff happening. U.S. Senator, sitting U.S. Senator grilling uh, FBI representative, I believe was the director, uh, over a memo that was conspiracy theory about a year ago or less, which was that the FBI had a memo that tells its agents to beware of pro-life Catholics because they're terrorists, maybe. And this conspiracy theory is not a conspiracy theory. Senator Grassley has a copy, and he's yelling at the guy. And there's all sorts of, we didn't do this, I didn't know about it, and who do you trust? I don't think it's going to get better over the next couple of years. But I do think it's going to be good for us. And a lot of that is based upon, you know, reading the Bible in general. But today, Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4 is just this powerful little nugget of hope. And we're going to go through it verse by verse as if it is ours. Because it is. And to get there, we're going to take a little tangent into Romans 15. So if you want to find your way to that text, it's all printed in the bulletin for you, what we'll be looking at. But I, I'm, I'm working out of my Bible. Feel free to do that for yourself as well. Starting at verse 4, where it says, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures we might have hope. That means that the Bible is written to give you hope. Every last ounce of it, every story, every page is there so that we Christians, Paul says, we're at the end of the book of Romans. We is very clear at this point. <laughs> we isn't everybody. We is those baptized into the death of Christ who long for his glorious coming, who acknowledge the authorities of the present age, but do not believe for a moment they supersede his impending return and his kingdom, which reigns even now. And in that space, he says, all the Old Testament was written for you, Christians, so that by its patience and its comfort, you might have hope. Now, it's one thing to say the word of God has comfort for you. I think that makes sense. I don't have to explain that. But if I tell you the word of God is patient with you, your Bible, don't worry, it's patient with you. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Right? You would think you'd have to be patient with it as you learned it because it's hard or something. But no, no, no. <laughs> it's by its patience with you, which is the freedom for you to make mistakes, to misunderstand, to get it wrong. Just keep reading. Just stay in it. Stay with what is clear. Go back to what is known, that by its patience and comfort, you may have, again, hope. Verse 5, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the end result of Bible study is that we're like-minded people. 
It's pretty cool. In a world divided over all manner of things where people can argue about every single thing, if we, when we spend our time hungering for the scriptures, they unify us. That isn't to say a man can't come along with an open Bible and lie through the teeth and tell you false things and destroy you with it. They can and they do. But that doesn't stop the good from being good. At the word of God, where it is planted, true grows. Always. And it never grows just you alone. It grows, it grows us. Yeah? So we, with one mind, one mouth, confessing, glorifying the true God, Jesus Christ, as the king, therefore, verse 7, receive one another just as Christ received us to the glory of God. And, and that in, is about hospitality, ultimately. I'm not going to dig on that too hard right now. Now I say, verse 8, that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That's like the whole book of Romans summarized right there. I'm going to read it again because he, he, that is the thesis statement to open the end of the book, right? When you write a thesis, if you missed this part in college, you've got to write a paper. Kids, you ready for this? Three paragraph essay, right? At the front, you say what you're going to say. And then you say it a bunch of times. And then at the end, you say, I said that. Yeah? That's your thesis statement. I say what I'm going to say. I said that. He's doing it again here. And the, the, the summary of Romans, again, is that Jesus Christ became a servant to the circumcision, that's to the Jews, for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, that's the Old Testament, so that the Gentiles, that's everyone who's not a Jew, might glorify God for his mercy too. Right? It doesn't say too, but too. For the Jew first, also for the Gentile. And the whole back end of this is him again saying what Romans is saying, salvation's for everybody, not just for the Jews. It's for everybody. The Gentiles too. And he's going to list a bunch of verses to prove that point. Yeah, for this reason, I confess you among the Gentiles. Rejoice, O Gentiles. Praise Jesus, you Gentiles. Isaiah, he says, there'll be a root from Jesse. He'll rise up to reign over the Gentiles. And in him, the Gentiles shall hope. And then again, may the God of peace fill you with all hope and joy in believing. May you abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what I want us to do, is abound in hope here. As the Gentiles, one more moment on that word before we go further. It's one of my least favorite words in any English translation ever because no one uses this word ever. <laughs> This word is gone. <laughs> uh, it doesn't mean anything except to those of us who've been in church long enough to know it kind of means not Jew. But we still don't know what it means, right? You don't know what it means. You don't feel the word Gentile deep in your soul. I'm a Gentile. Like, you, don't, you don't have an identity of that, right? But for the Jews at this time, and if you were a God-fearer trying to get close to the temple of God in Jerusalem, you know what it meant to be goyim. It meant they looked down on you. It meant you were kind of gross. It meant you weren't as good or godly and you never would be. I think there are groups of Jews who still teach that. I won't speak for all of them. But what Christianity teaches is that Judaism was never the thing. In fact, it was Christianity from the start. And Old Testament Messiah looking forward to Christianity was historically captured in the Bible that we might see how it went for them. So that after the word of God is no longer bound to one people and is set free for the entire world to receive it, we would be wise unto salvation and not do what they did, but learn from what they did, how to do what those who listened to God did. 
And so survive in faith as, again, the good, the righteous, the true, always did. The remnant always does. And then this is where Micah chapter 4 is going to be such a good summary of that idea. That the promises of God to save his people never go away. They didn't stop just because Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. He didn't say, I won't help you anymore. You're on your own. Heaven's all you got. I hope you make it. None of that is Christianity. Christianity is believing that the Savior God has taken care of your death and resurrection so that now you can live today fearlessly knowing that if he already did all of that, how much more will he not give you what is truly good for you now? And the word for that, by the way, in English would be prosperity. The problem with the word prosperity, unfortunately, in English is that it's attached itself to a lot of Christianity. And there are many people out there preaching parts of the text we're going to look at or texts like it. And they will tell you that if you become a Christian, God promises to prosper you. That's all true, by the way, so far. And therefore, you'll be rich. Oh, that's the lie. That's the lie right there. They always make prosperity mean money. When, so far as Jesus is concerned, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you cold hard cash. No, right? Comfort for your soul, which you can't buy with money. You can't. Hope in a God who will answer your prayer today for today. Is the salvation of Christianity working its way through us right now? Right. I'm not saying pray about everything you want. It always comes to pass. I'm saying in every trial, trouble, and need, call upon him in prayer and praise. And he's alive. It's not a story. He answers, often in ways you don't quite understand. But if you're reading the Bible, it'll be like clear as day because you just read the verse. And you're like, oh, look at me, what I did. Well, I repent and I go on and Jesus is with you. That's it again and again. Now, Micah 4 is going to look at this from the perspective of a group of people who want to believe in Jesus. That's who he's talking to, the believers. But they're in a country that doesn't believe in Jesus, even though it's Judah. (laughs) They're probably under Jotham or Ahaz at the moment, but it could be Hezekiah. It will lead to the story of Hezekiah. But What's going on is idolatry, wickedness, theft, murder, prostitution, all manner of all the evil you could possibly think. You just have to turn on your nightly news. And they're asking, where's God? What's God going to do? How shall this be? And Micah's chapter four is largely going to say, God is right here with you, sending all this catastrophe around you. And the only problem is you don't believe he's going to save you through it unto something better. Mike is going to touch that from a bunch of different angles. We're going to look at all of them here. I'm not going to draw every connection to America that I could, but I think that the echo is just like, it's just palpable. It's just going to, it's just there. We're so like this Judah at this time, a country that once perceived itself as a godly nation, pursuing the word of God. Our laws founded on English common law, founded on the Ten Commandments. And here we are, a city on a hill, our forefathers said, a place of liberty, freedom, religion, which is true, and what's happening now. Are we that? I guarantee you, across the world where that flag waves and they're thinking, oh, they're going to come and teach our little boys to be girls. They're not really one in Christian America anywhere near them. And the fact that Christian America is what they think this is, no wonder they call us the great Satan then. 
Do you see how complicated it all gets when you try to solve the whole thing? Okay, so pull back from that again. And remember that this promise, more than anything, is about how today you have enough today right here, and Jesus is going to prosper your soul through your knowledge that he's going to prosper your soul. In his wounds, by forgiveness, by the sacrifice of love for your neighbors, which again, I haven't defined it enough. Let me make sure I do. Love is not a feeling. Love is when you choose to do good to someone who doesn't deserve it. When you get married, you do that on purpose and you're like, I love her so much, but you don't even realize. <laughs> you're going to do good when she doesn't deserve it. And she's going to do good when you don't deserve it. That's love, right? That power again is ours here as a people to be distinct from the world. And in that, there are great promises that go with the outpouring of this love, which lest it be unclear, never from you. It's from Christ into you, and then it just kind of falls out. You leak grace everywhere you go. Right, that's the promise again. Chapter 4, verse by verse. Here we go. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, Micah says, that the mountain of Jesus Christ's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Now, Jesus Christ's house at that time would have been the temple in Jerusalem where the Ark of the Covenant was. There's no question. That's what Micah's got to be talking about. It has to be that. And it was already like the highest point in, in the mountain range that they're at. The city's like hooked in a mountain range and the temple's way up on the edge. So you walk into the valley, you see this huge thing up. So it's like, in that day, it will be lifted up. What do you mean? It's lifted up right now. But he's, he's pushing to something more. And, and you can hear it in the language above all the mountains, above all the hills, like it's up in the sky almost kind of a thing. And that's where from the beginning of this section, you must see it is about the end of the world. It is about the future of the life of the world to come. It is about the glory of the salvation that shall be revealed at the appropriate time that we wait and hunger and long for. And never do I want to take any of that away with the rest of what I say. Okay? So I'm going to say that this text applies to us today too. But I'm going to say that that is in a smaller manner than in the completion which we long for and wait for, right? That through hope and faith, we are tasting the goodness of Jesus that shall be complete at the feast. Yeah? Okay. So this mountain then, this house of Jesus, don't miss this either. It's not the temple in Jerusalem anymore. That temple was torn down, if you recall. Right now, there's a smaller building called the Dome of the Rock that sits on it, and the whole world wants to fight over that rock for some reason. Quite a thing. But there was a guy who came along. You know the story. He said, tear down the temple. I'll build it again. And they thought it was the building, but then they killed him anyway, and then he built his body back up. So the temple of Jesus Christ now... It's not this little building we're in here, right? It's his body, which, by the way, means you. <laughs> because according to the flesh and blood of the word of God that you eat and drink, you're a member of his body now. So again, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of Jesus Christ's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, shall be exalted above the hills, and many people shall flow to it. That, of course, is about the Christian church. That, of course, is about St. Paul Lutheran Church. That, of course, is about you individually. That you're going to have people who don't know Jesus who will flow to you. They'll come and go throughout your life. And Jesus is going to establish you among them like a mountain. 
because of your name being tied to his. Do you see how this is a now but not yet kind of thing? Right? It's dangerous today. I could mislead you with the idea that too many things of this life will happen in the right way as a promise from God. And that's not what I'm trying to say. But I am saying that praying to God does lead to many things going right in this life. They do, often in ways you don't expect. You couldn't have even asked for it. It's, it's better than you thought. And if you'd been getting what you wanted the whole time, you'd be trapping yourself in a box you could never get out of. So here again, the promise is for the exaltation of your soul, of your mind over the present moment. Yeah. Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Jesus, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he, Jesus, will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the law shall go forth the word of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem. I don't know how not to see that as Christianity just going out from Jerusalem in the book of Acts. That's what it is. At the word of God, Moses, fulfilled in Jesus, went forth, and many nations, all of us, have heard this now and come to this, right? And he will teach us, right? Go into all nations, baptizing and teaching them, and we shall walk in his paths. Not, we're going to go home and just live a normal life like everybody else, and then when we die, we get it better off because we checked the right box on the card. No, no. We shall walk in his paths now. Which again, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. His commandments are not tiresome. Love is good. Verse three, he shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And of course, Advent especially, right? This is the hope of the return, the eschaton, the day he comes back. No more swords, no more guns. Every uh, garment meant for war is going to be burned on the ash heap. Yeah? So I'm not trying to deny that, but I think you miss something if it's only in the future. Because the fact is that right now, God judges between many peoples by his word. If you and someone else who you don't know, you're not related to, you have no connection with, you come together in a dispute and you both agree the word of God is the solution and you both go to the word of God, you'll find out God judged between you rightly and you're probably both content with it because you're hungry for what he said. Right? He does that all the time. And when Christian leaders of companies or nations or counties or cities or whatever, when they go and they use the word of God to make the laws, guess what? God is judging people rightly through that. It's a promise. And when that happens, what happens next? Beat the swords into plowshares. Doesn't mean no more violence. Doesn't mean no more cops. But it does mean Christians make for peaceful places. Why? Because we want to. Why? Because we think it's good. Yeah, guess what? People who want to destroy each other over old grudges that are thousands of years old, they don't make for peaceful places. When they move into your neighborhoods, they don't make them better. Ah, it's, it's how it works. But Christians do. And so rather than worry about what everyone else is doing, how about as a Christian rejoice in the fact that you are promised, you are promised to be a source of peace in your life to other people. That is what you're going to be to other people. Yeah? And then, God willing, what ownership you have, what, what circle do you reign over? When you reign over your circle with peace, then peace shall be where you are. And 
I contest that when Christians do this, God's working in way more ways than just me or you, and the whole Christian church actively does this at the same time. The remnant prays, the people believe, and reformation happens. So that while we're here praying about what we think is important, all over the world, other Christians doing the same thing are having the result in righteous people coming into control of the laws in a variety of places. And again, I open with the news about the senator talking, right? There was a congressman this week who did like a 15 to 20 minute, just complete takedown of the Biden crime family. And I know I'm in a pulpit and I said it, but what are you going to do? It's a congressman saying it. There are so many people out there fighting for righteousness. I'm not saying he's right or someone else is wrong. I'm saying, let's make our prayers join them. Let's join our prayers to the righteous causes and believe that because we seek peace, God knows that. And I can run out there and try to make peace, and it will become war. I can ask Jesus for peace, and he will give it. So ask for your soul. Ask for your family. Ask for your neighborhood. Ask for your, you follow, right? Bigger and bigger. Everyone will sit, verse 4, under his own vine and fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of Jesus of hosts is spoken. I like this verse a lot. Um, ooh, and I use the word lot, which can be a pun. Uh, a lot is a word that can mean casting dice, right? It can mean like a, a lot, many things. Uh, and it can mean like a, a vacant spot of land. Right? And it's, it's in that last one, uh, the lot here. Uh, pro, uh, Psalm 16, uh, Jesus gives you your land. Jesus gives you your money, your hands, your house, your bed, whatever. Whatever you own, Jesus gives it to you. That's what this is about. Your vine and your fig tree. What does a man really, really want out of life? Does he really need a mansion he can't even walk through? Most guys, if they have a mansion, they make a small room where they can sit and read the paper and drink coffee. Right? And it's like their libraries. So all of the show for just, I just want a vine and a fig tree. It's really all I want. Right? Hear that language that way, metaphorically. It's just for your little den, your little space. And what he says is, every man who's a Christian will dwell in his own vine and fig tree, and no one will make you afraid because Jesus has said so. So again, let me suggest to you, of course, the future complete. I'm going to find fear in this life. No trouble, or no problem. Yeah. But in the meantime, do I have to be afraid of everything in somebody else's lot? Everything on somebody else's land? Of all these people doing all this stuff far away, or can I just go back and mow my lawn and know that Jesus gave me that to do? He didn't make me president. He didn't make me a, a, a mega conglomerate financial millionaire who can rule the world. He made me a guy to tell you, hey, let's go home, take care of our houses, and know Jesus will take care of it. Let's ask, though, right? Let's ask. Let's ask. For all people's walk, each in the name of his God, Oh, so much just in that thought. But we will walk in the name of Jesus Christ our God forever and ever. That's the, that's the, 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 the thrust there, right? That while the world we can expect to make great and wicked errors, we don't have to go that way. <laughs> just because they go that way. Well, how are you not going that way? I, well, I'm not going to fall off the cliff with you. That's how. <laughs> you know, we, can, we can see clearly. Um, verse 6. In that day, says Jesus, I will assemble, notice that's like the root of the word church there, assembly, congregate, right? Gather. I will assemble, who? The lame. I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. 
I think the Gentiles right here, right? Anybody who you think isn't wanted, that's who God's going after. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So Jesus will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. So, uh, summarizing that whole segment here for a moment, and I'll try to show you it line by line a little more, um, but what I really think that is saying uh, is that in the day of the New Testament church, Jesus is going to go out and save the weak, the poor, those who can't save themselves, and he will draw them together into Christianity, the church, that's what we are, and that the church shall experience the promises of the kingdom of God as given in the Old Testament. And I mean this. The promises given in the Old Testament to the people of God that their enemies would not conquer them, that they could rest securely in his protection, that their daily bread would be met, right? That all things were working for their good, that even if a wicked king came through their repentance and prayers, a good king would come again. All those things are yours now. They didn't go away. God didn't stop the promises just because he fulfilled them. Now they're flowing out. It doesn't mean you'll never have a cow who dies in your field. But it does mean that if God kills your cow, he knows what he's doing. So uh, yeah, stop the other cows from getting sick, but stop fearing it. That's the difference. It's just fear versus acceptance, really. Let's do that verse by verse. In that day, I will assemble the lame, the outcast, the afflicted. Again, those are the weak, right? Who are we? Paul says it this way. Not many of you were strong. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were wealthy when you were called to the church. Um, and by wealthy, by the way, you know, I mean those mega, mega wealthy type of people, right? Uh, people who have so much capacity that they could, they could just build churches if they wanted to. Right? We don't get a lot of those, usually. Huh? Uh, so, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. Um, we who are weak are going to be strong enough. It is the weakest members of the body that make the body most necessary. Paul has whole sections about this in the New Testament, right? The foot can't say to the eye, I don't need you and all that. Yeah. So here we are and we can expect them. This is it. Expect that we are broken people. Expect that everybody you meet in Christianity or at St. Paul has some past they're wanting to forget, some slavery they're wanting to get out of, some freedom they're trying to feel. We're all in that together. And we are promised that through that we will bear with each other and build up unto the solution to our prayers which may not be that my weakness goes away so much as I see how my weakness and your weakness go together as a strength. And then we click and then we click and we start hooking our weaknesses into strengths, which if we all had all the strengths, we'd basically just shout at each other about how smart we are, how much better we are. Right? Weaknesses help us see each other if we can put up with it and maybe be humble enough to realize somebody else's weakness feels like strength when it's in your face, yeah? uh, but it's actually weakness. Right? Take that for what it's worth. The idea here is that we aren't here because we're good enough. We're here because Jesus is good enough, and that's good enough. It's more than good enough. It's going to be rest for our souls, so he'll reign over us. He does that now, right? This is where, just look at the end of verse 7. Jesus Christ will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. We're not waiting for that. There's nothing there we're waiting for, for Jesus to reign over us. 
He's our, he's our king, yeah? And you then, tower of the flock, that would be any people who are the leaders in the community of Christianity, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, here daughter of Zion as Christianity, right? We came out from the Hebrew religion when Christ was rejected by them. As for us, to you it shall come even the former dominion. What's the former dominion? It's the power to believe that you have God's ear, and according to your vocation, he will answer your prayers for the good of what you're supposed to do for everybody under you. So you're not David the king, so you don't get to rely on David making you king and establishing your kingdom, but whatever you are, you do get to rely on God doing that for you with what he's made you to be. And the promise is going to grow you, right? But so much of this is seen, it, it isn't about like hoarding. Like he doesn't give you your own vine and your own fig tree so you can like get your neighbors too. Right? And that's what we do by the heart. We're always wanting more. No? Okay, so I have my page turned. I got to turn it back here. Um, the dominion shall come. We must expect that Christianity has the capacity to impact, change, and improve our city and our state and our culture. And that if they're not listening and they're destroying themselves, that's not a reason for us to think we're not, we're not succeeding. It's a reason for us to believe God's about to lop them off and give us more success than we can imagine. And he's going to say that here again, where, where this goes next. It's, it's really quite something. Um, so verse 9, you know, first he, he kind of scoffs at us a little bit. And remember, you know, they do have a king and a temple. So it's, it's like really obvious, like there's the king. If he goes to the temple and prays to Jesus, everything works, right? So he kind of asks them the question, you know, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Can't, can't, you, can't you repent? Aren't you, don't you know God is here to answer? Right? Has your counselor perished? Like, can nobody give you good advice from the Bible anymore? Can nobody tell you what is truth or falsehood anymore? Yeah? The pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. That is, you're creating your own pain. You're creating your own problems. You're running around pulling your hair out. And so he says, fine, be in pain then. Be in pain and labor to bring forth. Right? If you think the collapse of your city is something to like freak out about, where's God? Well, then fine. Feel that pain. Yeah, and from now on, you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field and go to Babylon. He actually ups the ante there. <laughs> I'm going to come back to that. Let's come back to Babylon in a sec. So the point here is complaining about the suffering that we're experiencing isn't going to solve any of the suffering that we're experiencing, but going to the proper authority does. And so if you are struggling, how about pray the Psalms? Right? How about read the Proverbs? Are you not sure what to do? Hi, I'm your pastor. I'll talk to you. I'll answer your questions. I'll give you advice. It can be bad advice. I'm just a guy, but I try to base it on the scriptures, right? So seek counsel. And then, like, don't we have a king? Oh, wait. <laughs> we don't have a king, do we? Uh, unless you consider Charles, you know, Canada's king. Um, but, but we do. We have a president. And we have a guy who's running for president, and we have a bunch of people on the Supreme Court, and we got a bunch of people that are doing this and that and all this. Okay, so every single one of those people is effectively like a small king in some way. And if we're really concerned about the future, the issue is not how to replace them. This is one of the weird things about America, right? So, so right now, there's this great mythology out there, which is that if we just vote differently next time, it'll all get better, right? And that's what happened last time. The other side, right? If we just vote differently this time, it'll all get better, right? 
all of this is a complete lie. What must happen is not that we elect Donald Trump to replace Joe Biden. What must happen is that we pray that one of them becomes such a fervent Christian that all he can do is talk about Jesus every time he's on the stage. Can you imagine if Donald Trump, with all he's got going on right now, suddenly like found Jesus? All the stuff he's saying when he's out there and all those, if he's just talking about Jesus, imagine what that would do to this country. So why don't we, why don't we pray like that? You see what I'm saying? Don't assume you have to fix it. Believe Jesus has a plan. And I'll suggest to you that there's a lot of righteous people out there right now. There's a lot of Christians out right there right now. And we're not all unified in institutions and organizations and the stuff that they have used to actually take over. And uh, we'll leave that where it is. But you know, our universities are teaching things that aren't good. And that was a takeover. Um, there's still a lot of us out here. And we still have the same God. And we don't even have to talk to each other to call on him and have him send answers. So I'm walking along, and here comes a Christian I've never seen before, and they're the answer to what I just needed. It does happen. It does happen. And it doesn't just happen with other Christians. It happens with the Bible. You know this. You ever had one of those moments where you're like, man, I should read the Bible, and like three days go by? And you finally read it, and like if you had read it the, the first day, you wouldn't have got it. But that day, oh, it really hit. If you haven't had that happen, it happens. <laughs> it happens, right? Uh, Jesus has the path prepared for you. Now, that's where then the bit about Babylon here at the bottom, bottom of the page for me at least, uh, uh, verse 10. The bit about Babylon here, he's like, okay, you're upset because you think, you know, this part's being bad. They're destroying Judah and they're, they're conquering your farms and you're all worried about that. Well, what if I told you they're going to conquer you all the way and you're going to be slaves? I'm sending you to Babylon. Are you ready for that one? Are you ready for that to be good news, not bad news? And for you to trust me that I'm going to save you through it? And, they, you know, they're like, no, <laughs> no, they're not. And are we? Well, probably not as much as we could be. That's why we study these texts, right? We let them teach us, yeah? So, like a woman in, pay, in birth pangs, from now you shall go forth from the city and you shall dwell in the field. To Babylon you shall go and there you shall be delivered. Not there you shall be destroyed. There you shall be delivered. There Jesus will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Oh, goodness. Esther, right? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like, God goes with you even if you get conquered. And I, I don't, I hope we're not anywhere near that. I don't know. But God goes with me. And so even if I find myself conquered, what have I to fear? And no, we got lots of reasonable answers. I got them too. <laughs> yeah, but, but I'm preaching to you what we're supposed to believe. And I'll tell you that when I preach it, it feels better than when I sit and I worry about it. So it must be true that when it's on your lips, it is the power of God for salvation in that very moment. Yeah. Jesus will redeem you from wherever he sends you, whatever struggle he puts you in, however much he says, I must grind you down in order to purify your dross away from you. Nonetheless, I am with you to build you up. Yeah, um, yeah I think uh, I had one more thought there, but we'll leave it. Verse 11. Now also, many nations have gathered against you who say, let her be defiled and let her eye look upon Zion. That was the other thing. Scroll back to history here. Micah is preaching this eventually to Hezekiah. Hezekiah will hear what Micah says and what Isaiah says. He will repent. 
They will be saved. This terror and destruction that falls upon Judah, it does not fall upon Jerusalem. Jerusalem is saved by angel armies. They go out and they restore and they establish Judah again for generations until it happens all over again, right? Uh, They fall away again. And the final time, it, it is fulfilled. These words are fulfilled. But can, you can see even there then, he's telling Hezekiah, and we know from the stories, Hezekiah hears this his own way. You're going to Babylon anyway. He's telling Hezekiah, you can't save your country finally, but he doesn't tell Hezekiah, you can't pray for salvation for your country today. And that's the story. That's the hope. That's what we have is, is we have prayer for salvation for our, our souls, for our families, for our neighborhoods, for our cities, for our country today. But it will be salvation in Christianity. God's not going to save a country that mutilates children for money (laughs) in order for having them go do that to a bunch more poor people somewhere else on the planet. That's not going to happen, right? So so we have to pray for repentance. We have to pray for real change. Verse 11, though, these, these nations, they gather against you. So at the time, Jerusalem is being surrounded by Assyria and all these armies. They, Assyria's armies and Persia's armies, they weren't just made up of Assyrians. Like everybody they conquered, it was like a zoo. <laughs> you know, they had people on elephants and stuff or whatever. It, it, they are all gathering around Jerusalem. And they're wanting to take from Jerusalem. Now, again, I said I'm not going to connect all the dots with America today. But if you don't think America's surrounded right now, I don't, you're not listening to any of the stories. Like all of them say we're surrounded. Uh, it was an FBI director, I believe Comey again, that said, witness, as a witness. Uh, in my entire career, there have been many, this week, last week, there have been many uh, times where I felt that the, the tensions were so high that this thing could really just boil over and become bad. But I've never been in a time where all the things were about to boil over at the same time. Now, he didn't have the emotion I had when I said it, but he said it on the stand. You go find it. It's bad out there right now. And again, the, the news we have as Christians is, okay, great. It's actually good for us. Can you hear that? It's bad out there right now. It's good for us. Let's continue with verse 11 and 12. I'm going to read 11. You heard it a moment ago. Many nations gather against you who say, let her be defiled. Let her eye look upon Zion. But, verse 12, but they do not know the thoughts of Jesus, nor do they understand his counsel, for he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Sheaves on the threshing floor. Before tractors and the, the combines and the ability to just get all the stuff out of the plant real nice and easy, you had to do it by hand. And you'd, you'd cut down the grasses and you'd move them all into this big barn. And that was the threshing floor. And you would, kind of like shoveling snow, right? You would just throw the, the stuff up in the air with a big fork over and over and over again. I imagine just backbreaking work. But what happened is the, the plant is such that the, the seed is heavier than the chaff on the outside. And so if you just do that a bunch, the seed falls to the bottom of the pile. And then the chaff is so light, a lot of it will just blow out the window. So they, they, they create an airflow right between, and they have a fire pit outside. And they blow the chaff out to the fire. And that's Gehenna in one way. You know, that's hell. Uh, so Jesus says, do you see your enemies surrounding you? And apply that to your personal life or the nation. I don't care. Do you see your enemies surrounding you? Guess what? They don't know what I'm doing. Nor do they understand how I'm gathering them 
to you like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, verse 13 says. For I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in peoples, in, in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to Jesus Christ and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. Do you think you're surrounded by millions of immigrants who we won't be able to handle? Are you concerned about military-age men crossing our border in large droves? Are you worried about the fact that parts of the grid are already having trouble in states like California? And that's just the future for everybody. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. All of this is happening so that there will be more people who are starving for Jesus. All of this is happening so that your hunger for Jesus will not be diminished, but increased. As you see that those who are starving for Jesus can be fed by you, by us, by us together. Arise, I will make your horn iron, right? They can't stand against us. I will make your hooves bronze. We are going to go forward no matter what. Huh? You shall beat in pieces many peoples. What does that mean? It means when the group goes by and they're all against us, there'll be one, three, seven who come and become one of us. Because the word of God goes like a rain shower over there and he pulls out. It, it gathers the net of the fish and the batter thrown and the good are kept. That's his work. That's his spirit. You can't tell where it goes, when it goes. But he says pretty clearly in Micah 4, if you live in a collapsing civilization with lots of foreigners about to descend on you, guess what? They're coming for you to convert them. If you want to be afraid for your house and go hide with the cowards, go for it. Instead, stand firm, mow your lawn, and get ready with some psalms on your mouth so you can talk to people about Jesus. It's powerful stuff. And it's an antidote to the kind of like shivering that the main media narrative wants you to have. Right? It wants you to be shivering every day. It wants you to be uncertain about tomorrow, especially while things are so busy. I just had a friend say after first service, you know, someone asked me about next week. I said, let's talk about tomorrow, right? It's so busy. How could you tell the future? And yet all of it out there, all those stories are about the future. They're not about today. Christ says, I'm enough today. Your lot is enough today. What is your own is enough today. And I'm not going to take the cows out of your field and destroy you. That's the psalm from earlier, right? I'm not going to take away all your stuff just to make you suffer for no reason. <laughs> if I make you suffer, it will be for good reason. And that good reason will be the glory of seeing it is far more valuable to win the soul of another human being to the mind of Jesus Christ and the peace that passes understanding when we share that truth with each other in conviction and hope worth so much more than whatever I could add on to my acre if I had enough more of this, that, or the other thing to put it all together the way I want it now. now. Come to me, you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus said. I think, for me, that might be the most important Bible verse in my young memory of Christianity. As I look back, I, there was a time when um, I was really doing some dark-er stuff, later high school, early college, and uh, there was some friends who played a, 
they made me, while we were going to bowl or something, made me listen to a, a song by a Christian artist called In the Light by DC Talk. And I remember very, very firmly having that song inspire me. I was looking out the window, and I hadn't thought about Jesus ever, really, ever. And I remember thinking, I, I'd rather be in light than darkness. Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds really good. I know, though, uh, that's one story. I know, though, the first time I heard someone read what Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. I know I wanted that. I wanted that. And I pray that my work with you here as a pastor never takes that from you, but gives it to you. I pray that we as a people see just what freedom that gives us to walk at liberty again. While the world descends around us in what kind of chaos, whoever's going to show up at our door, we're ready for. Because we're the people of God. We're the kingdom. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. In Jesus' name.